as Hal said. Uh, my name is Matt Seipel. I'm one of uh, the pastors here, and we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John. Uh, let me just remind you where we left off last Sunday, Hal finished up uh, the last part of what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17, and that closed out what we've referred to as uh, the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. That started about four months ago, okay? So today starts a new section of the teaching uh, time for Jesus with his disciples is over, and the narrative kind of picks up steam here. And really, uh, from now through the end of May, we're going to be talking about the arrest, trial, uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's going to take up all our time for the next uh, few months. So with that in mind, uh, follow along with me. Uh, This is John 18. We'll be reading the first uh, 14 verses. Uh, Of course, we do have it uh, printed for you there uh, in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible. This is John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and we thank you especially uh, for this word. And John, we pray now that you would bless it, um, that you would press it down uh, into our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a priest, a rabbi, and a band of soldiers walk into an olive garden. I couldn't figure out where else to fit that into the sermon, so I just... I had to get that off my chest and get it out of the way. That's why I only preach a few times a year here. Um, This is probably a pretty familiar passage uh, to many of you. Um, It was likely a pretty familiar story uh, to John's original hearers as well. Uh, This story of Jesus' arrest uh, shows up in all three other Gospels and in all three places. It's remarkably uh, similar. Uh, And even if... John's original audience hadn't uh, read those stories. They would have been familiar 
uh, with that oral tradition uh, by the time he wrote his gospel. And so John, he ends up telling the story just a little bit differently. Uh, It's the same story, uh, but he leaves out some of the details uh, that they might have come to expect. Uh, Judas's kiss is not in the story. Uh, The healing of the man's ear is not in the story. But he also adds uh, some details. Uh, He chooses to highlight uh, certain features uh, to make the points that he has been trying to make. And later in chapter 20, uh, John will say that this gospel is written so that people will know who Jesus is. Uh, And he makes it abundantly clear in the opening chapter of this gospel that Jesus is not uh, simply a great man. He's not even uh, just a great Savior, but he's actually uh, God himself who took on flesh for the sake of his people. Of course, the problem uh, for many of us is we didn't, we didn't actually come here this morning trying to figure out if Jesus is God or not. Uh, a more modern question might be something like, is Christianity something that I can add to my identity? Or to paraphrase the writer Alan Noble, uh, does Jesus fit in to who I envision myself to be? In a world uh, where nothing is concrete and our self is the only truth that we know, uh, everything else becomes an optional uh, add-on. And what we want to know is, well, will Jesus help me to believe, uh, help me to be who I believe that I am? Or will he help me to be who I believe I ought to be? Uh, will he improve the life that I'm already absolutely committed to living? Or will he fit in to who I've already determined myself uh, to be? In Scripture, uh, Scripture reframes our questions. And according to the Gospel of John, Jesus is actually not an option uh, at all. Uh, he's not an add-on to our chosen identities. He was with God, and he was God. And the whole world was made by him and through him. The only question for us this morning is how will you respond to his identity? In the previous four chapters, uh, Jesus has been preparing his disciples uh, for his departure, uh, for the darkness that is to come. And now the darkness, it is here. Uh, It is upon them, and John's portrayal is meant to show us that Jesus is in absolute control of the whole situation. He's the one who's orchestrating the scene as he carries out his Father's commission and obedience and love. Even as his own earthly freedom is taken away from him, it is his power and glory that are on display here. And so there's there's two things that I want us to see this morning, two uh, features of Jesus' identity Uh, that I want you to walk away from. Uh, First, that Jesus demonstrates his control here. Uh, Throughout the scene, he is the one uh, who's in command of the situation. And then second, uh, that Jesus reminds us of his commission, that he had a very specific purpose uh, that he was to carry out. So Jesus' control and Jesus' commission. So first... Uh, Jesus demonstrates his control here. What we find in John 18 is not a weak man uh, who's in hiding, but one who's 
resolute and every step of the way he's in charge of the situation. He does not uh, flinch with what's before him. Uh, One of the details that John adds for us in verse 2 is that Judas uh, knew about the garden, he says. Of course, the reason he knew about it was because just a few hours ago, he was one of the 12 disciples. Uh, The garden here was likely this uh, walled enclosure that they would have used to get away from the crowds, uh, to talk with one another, and to pray. And Judas had been there many times uh, with Jesus. Now, every kid who's played hide-and-seek knows that you don't hide in your favorite hangout spot, right? Uh, Jesus is in a quiet place, but it's not a secret. Uh, He is exactly where Judas would expect to find him. Except it seems like Judas doesn't quite know what to expect. Um, He might have thought that Jesus would try to run, or he might have thought that the crowd that was with him might be ready to resist. And so verse 3 tells us he brings a band of soldiers with torches and weapons with him. Now, I'm not sure uh, what you imagined or what came into mind uh, when you read band of soldiers. I think I've had something like 10 or 12 in mind before. Maybe a few more uh, people with Judas than Jesus had with him. But actually, this this word translated band of soldiers here, it's typically used uh, to refer to 600 people. Uh, It could mean as little as 200. It also could mean up to 1,000. The word translated captain in verse 12 means commander of 1,000. But usually, it meant 600. Okay, A tenth of a legion is what it's referring to. So I just want you to think about that. I want you to consider... Kind of the drama of the situation here. Let's just say there were more people in the band of soldiers than are in this room right now. They all had weapons and they were coming to arrest a former carpenter turned rabbi. Now, why would Judas bring uh, this kind of force with him? Either, either he's scared of Jesus. <laughs> Or he's scared of what his followers might do. But it's pretty clear that either through some some combination of ignorance or hard-heartedness, he has no real grasp of what it is that he's up against. He's joined with the agents of darkness to arrest the light of the world. So verse 4 tells us that although Judas, uh, he knew... Uh, where to find Jesus, Jesus knew all that would happen. He knew all that was going to happen to him, not just Judas's betrayal. Uh, notice uh, what he chooses to do with this knowledge. It says, he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Knowing what would happen and knowing what he's up against, Jesus steps out of the garden, past its walls, and into uh, the confrontation. He does not run or even try to delay, he moves forward to engage this band of soldiers and asks them, who are you looking for? Uh, This had to come as a shock (laughs) uh, to this group of soldiers. They're on a march. They've got torches. Uh, They probably are aware that it's something like 50 to 1. I imagine they had quite a bit of confidence as they approached the garden. 
And Jesus calmly steps out to meet them. And before they can even speak, he asks them a question. Now, this is the same Jesus that you and I will all meet one day. And we will all stand before him. And we will not be the ones asking questions. Either they don't recognize him or feel some obligation to answer him literally. And so they say, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. I'll be just a bit technical here for a second, uh, but I think it's important that you understand what he's saying. Uh, This phrase, I am he here, it's a fair translation. It's a reasonable way to translate um, the Greek phrase here. And it would be sort of a throwaway line, except uh, that it's repeated three times here. Uh, We're meant to have our attention uh, drawn to this. There's something that John wants us uh, to notice. And the really attentive reader might have picked up that this phrase has already been used 21 times in the Gospel of John, and then three more times uh, right here. A more literal, uh, kind of wooden translation would simply say, I am. Uh, In the Greek Old Testament, uh, these same words uh, were used uh, when God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush. And probably what I think John has in mind is the prophet uh, Isaiah and these passages that we read earlier. Seventeen times in Isaiah this phrase comes up and almost all of them are in God's mouth. I am he. Uh, John couldn't be more clear here. Jesus is identifying himself as God. Jesus of Nazareth, he is all of those things that we read about from Isaiah earlier. He is the first and the last. He is the only Savior. Now, back in chapter 8, Jesus used this same phrase uh, when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. And in that scene, they pick up stones and they want to kill him. Uh, They knew exactly Uh, what he meant, and then they want to kill him again in chapter 10 when he says, I and the Father are one. But here, uh, you see the reaction's pretty different. When Jesus says, I am he, they step back and they fall down. Uh, This is just what we see happen when Isaiah and Ezekiel meet God. They can't stand When Paul meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he falls to the ground. And then the same writer, John, here in Revelation chapter 1 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Uh, There's more going on here uh, than just the meaning of the phrase. I I don't believe these men were reflecting on the theological significance of the moment. As one commentator put it, Uh, This was an involuntary prostration. Uh, The power of God himself, the incarnate word, uh, had flashed before them, however briefly. And so these men, all 600 of them with their torches and their weapons, they were dropped in a moment. All by the power of God the Son and his word. When you leave here this morning, uh, the world is going to bombard you with advice. 
about better ways to organize your house or to eat well or to raise your children. Now, whatever advice you want, you can find someone uh, who's willing to give it. Uh, Many religions uh, will offer to lead you toward the truth, and you can search through magazines and Pinterest and find all kinds of visions of the good life. And Jesus, he doesn't promise any of these things. He doesn't promise better methods. He doesn't promise to lead you to the truth. He doesn't promise to improve your life. His claims are much more grand than all of those things. He says he is the way, the truth, and the life. I am he is his claim. What I want us to get our arms around is that Christianity is not medicine. It's not even uh, the best option. It is reality. I am he. Instead of fitting him into uh, your life, Jesus is to be worshipped and to be followed, and your identity must begin and end with him. We are to give up all other loyalties in service uh, to him, or or we stand with Judas and the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the band of soldiers. It is the only choice. How will we relate to him? Not if we will relate to him. And it it actually is an all-or-nothing proposition. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, this could sound rather bold. Uh, It may sound harsh or even arrogant, and that's certainly uh, not our intention. But you need to reckon uh, with Jesus' claims here. You see, if you're going going to reject him, you need to know what it is uh, you're rejecting. And I am he is the only way to take Jesus Now, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, of course, you're still going to have these daily decisions to make about your calendar and your diet and your kids. Those aren't going to go away, uh, but these must constantly be placed in the service of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't add him to ourselves. We bring ourselves uh, to him with all the honor and thanks that we can muster. Jesus is in control here. Uh, He's orchestrating uh, every step of the scene, and in fact, he is God. But for us to appreciate what's happening here, uh, we also need to understand his commission. Uh, the The control you see Jesus exercising here in large part is his resolve to walk in obedience Uh, to his father, to carry out this unique task uh, that's been given to him. And so look at verse 7. Jesus asked uh, the second time uh, who they're looking for, and when they repeat to him, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, well, if you seek me, and we know they do, he made them say it twice. Uh, If you seek me, well, then let these men go. In other words, you said it yourself I'm the one that you want. Leave these other men alone. And then verse 9 tells us that this was to fulfill 
the word he'd spoken. See, earlier when he prayed in chapter 17, maybe just a few hours or maybe just a few minutes earlier, he prayed that of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And what we see here is that Jesus' own words are fulfilled in this moment. His own prayer is being answered in front of them. You see, you see what John is showing us here. The whole scene is like a dramatic symbol. It's a, it's a picture of all that Jesus came to do to offer himself on behalf of his people. He is the good shepherd. Even as this darkness is upon him, especially as this darkness is upon him, he lives and he dies for the sake of his sheep, the ones that the Father has given him. He never stops thinking of our good And today, uh, right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He did all of this with full awareness of the disciples' coming abandonment. Full awareness of Peter's uh, three denials that would come very soon. He knew all that was going to happen to him, and yet he remains faithful. I want you to hear this what this means. There's nothing that you can do to stand in the way of his obedience to the Father. Not your sin, uh, not your weakness or your frailty, not your forgetfulness or your ingratitude. You cannot stop the good shepherd from keeping his promises. And so what's his promise? It's more than protection. It's intervention here. He came to do what we cannot do for ourselves, to offer himself as substitution. Now, when you see Peter uh, step forward and sort of boldly cut off this man's ear, you might feel a little bit of sympathy for him. Um, You might find his loyalty sort of Commendable, at least in, in one sense. But what John wants us to see here is that there's just not any room for another hero in the story. And there's no room for another hero in your story either. You must take Jesus whole or not at all. We're to put our swords away. And he has more than just um, violence and force in view here. You see, any participation, uh, any little bit of addition to Jesus' atoning work, he wants you to put it away. Now, I know most of you wouldn't say or at least wouldn't admit uh, that you think you're saved by your works. But if you're a Christian and you are confronted with your sin, and you just try to bury it, and you try to push it down, and you try to just move on, or you feel yourself kind of bucking up against your own dependence. I mean, have you ever just been angry that you have to depend on someone else? Put the sword away. Jesus 
doesn't need your help. It's not that your obedience doesn't matter or that your actions are irrelevant or that your loyalty is not really important. It's that the Father only gave this cup to the Son and no one else uh, can do this. Uh, For Peter to even try to face down these 600 men, aside from the foolishness of the picture, uh, it was to stand in the way of Jesus' commission and further, uh, it was a subtle denial that Jesus' obedience alone would be enough. Jesus sweat drops like blood as he considered uh, this moment, but he has resolved to obey his Father out of love for him and out of love for us. He's not the victim here. He is the one who lays down his own life and then takes it up again. So when you and I place obedience to the Father above all other practical considerations, uh, we are walking uh, where Jesus walked. But this is not, it's not just an example for us. Uh, There's something at work here that we ought not to try to imitate. And we really really couldn't imitate it if we did want to. Verse 11 uh, tells us about a cup. In Scripture, uh, this word here, cup, is usually used as a symbol of judgment, especially in the Psalms and Proverbs. So let me just read a couple verses from the Psalms to give you an idea of what Jesus has in mind here when he says that he's got to drink the cup that the Father's given to him. Uh, Psalm 11, verse 6 says, Let him rain coal on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Uh, Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down uh, to the dregs. Uh, this is the cup of the Father's wrath on the sins of his people that Jesus is talking about. Now, you might not think that your sins really need to be punished, much less uh, wrath, whatever that is. That sounds really bad. Um, You may not even be sure that God is real. Perhaps just the, the suffering that you've experienced or that you've observed in the world causes you to ask, I mean, is there... Are you really telling me there's a God who created everything and he governs all of history and he cares about what I did this weekend? Of course, the problem is, if there's no God, uh, then no one cares. It's not just God who doesn't care about your sin. The universe does not care about your sin. It might even feel like freedom uh, for a couple minutes until you realize that the universe doesn't really care about anyone else's sin against you either. Uh, Without God, uh, whatever evil you see or experience, uh, it is just a feature of the way things are. Uh, Without a judge and without a judgment, uh, there is no justice. Uh, Your own sense that wrongs ought to be made right, that is real. 
because you have been made in the image of God, uh, then you know deep down in your bones that you have not loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But because he is real, and because God does care, there's only two possibilities for your sins. Either Jesus didn't really die, and you're in real trouble, or he did, and there is real hope for justice and forgiveness. See, Jesus wasn't just a nice man or a teacher's pet. Uh, his obedience was not some kind of do-goodism. It was a burden like none of us has ever known. It was to bear the curse of God himself. That through his death, not through a revolution, but through his death, would come life. He's the only man who never sinned, and he takes on the punishment for our sins. This is why John brings up Caiaphas a second time in verse 14. Now, this is the same high priest who earlier in chapter 11 had unknowingly prophesied about Jesus' substitution. Uh, he thought it would be expedient for one man to die rather than the Roman government to wipe out Israel. Uh, but he didn't know. <laughs> he didn't know the truth that he spoke, that God the Son had become a man and that his obedience would satisfy the demands of God's law to the uttermost, that in his death he would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, the whole scene looks back on the first chapter of John where we find that the light shined, but the world did not recognize it. Now, these 600 men, despite being knocked to the ground by the power of God's word, uh, they missed it. They tried to fit Jesus into their own picture of how the world works, of their place in the world and what their needs are. But they missed it. I don't want you to miss it. I don't want us to miss what is on offer in the Gospel of John, it's nothing less than the ability to take all of your sins, um, every one of them, uh, the worst of them, uh, even the sins that you've not yet committed, no matter how bad uh, they have been or will be, and to take all of them and to lay them on Jesus to plead with the Father for mercy that he might grant you by his Holy Spirit faith to believe that this cup that Jesus drank, it was for you. That it was for you. And he'll take away all of your sins. And we have no greater need than that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he lived every day of his life in glad obedience to you because he loves you and because he loves us. I pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes on him.
that we would find all of our identity in him, that we would not uh, shy away from dependence, but would be thankful uh, that we have a good shepherd that we can depend on. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Help us to trust him. We ask it in his name. Amen.